I distinctly remember spending like 12 hours searching till the end of Alibaba, being like, I'm sure somebody in China has already built this. This has to exist. There's no way we were the first to uncover it. Hello and welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the number one show for all things e-commerce, where we get to hear from the best founders, CEOs, and digital leaders today. I'm Stephanie Postles, CEO of Mission.org and your host. Today's episode is a super insightful chat with Dimitri Chevalanko, the co-founder and president of Tortoise, a company that has a pretty unique product, if I must say so. What is it and how did Dimitri come up with it? Well, it started with the technology behind a lawnmower with remote operation capability and eventually morphed into the concept for a remotely operated delivery robot. And then a mobile vending machine, which is creating a whole new kind of customer experience. Get the whole story and what brands can get from this kind of experience on today's episode. Plus, Dimitri tells me about how an anthropological mindset can give your entrepreneurial career a huge boost. Enjoy today's episode. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Dimitri, I am so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm even more excited than you. Thanks for having me on. It's going to be fun. Good. We'll have to keep like trying to up each other the whole interview. Like, who's more excited? Probably. (laughs) So I don't know you, but I want to get to know you. And I'm actually doing something a bit different in this interview. I want to start with a round of lightning round questions where you have two minutes or less to answer. And they're just quick, fun questions. And some of them are a little bit tricky that you can like take a pause and think about if you need to. How's that sound? All right. Hit me. All right. So I know you're, you've been in the Bay Area a long time. So I want to hear what's the worst piece of business advice you've ever received? Uh, there, there's a lot. I mean, I, I think in general, you should ignore all business advice because, you know, advice is very particular. And, uh, you know, you should try to get a lot of different perspectives. But, but ultimately, if you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, advice is not going to be relevant. And especially advice from people who don't have skin in the game. So, you know, that's, I think, avoiding uh, the advice on Twitter, because mm. most of those people don't know you, that would probably be the, the best piece of advice I would give. Yeah, just don't listen to advice unless people have. Yeah. I like the skin in the game part. That's a good uh, Nassim Taleb reference right there. What do you think is true, but it's actually just good marketing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, a lot of in, in startup life, like there's a belief that you really need to build a company first and like hire people for like traditional functions that a company has. And I think that's all noise until you have product market fit, right? So I think, yeah, where where a lot of startups get it wrong is first building a company and then building products. And, you know, from my vantage point, like 
you don't get the right to have a company until you have something that people want. Yep. And a lot of founders get you know, caught up in the trappings of like, oh, I need a marketing person. I need HR. I need recruiting. And honestly, you should be doing all that yourself until you earn the right to, to kind of build a company. Yep. Love that. What was your first childhood job? Selling fine jewelry at Sears. Oh. So yeah, I was helping a lot of uh, you know plumbers and electricians make the big leap and uh, buy that engagement ring. And yeah, I mean, Sears doesn't really exist anymore. So it feels like a very anachronistic uh, first job to have, but, uh, and fine jewelry at Sears of all things. But I often say, if you can sell fine jewelry at Sears, you can pretty much sell anything. Oh yeah. Especially as a young person, you know, selling jewelry. Yeah, it, it was just so random, uh, but I feel I learned a lot through the randomness. Yeah, that's good. Probably the best salesperson ever now. Last one, what's the most underrated technology right now? I think we still underappreciate the profound implications of just 4G LTE. I, I think the incremental benefit of 5G, and I just heard that they're going from 5G to 10G. They're skipping six, seven, wow. eight, nine. Just leapfrogging it. Goodbye. <laughs> Marketing. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of things that, that sound good but aren't true, like we're still scratching the surface of what it means to kind of have access to connectivity and data pretty much everywhere at all times. And we're you know, getting excited about VR, AR, like all these new things. And there's just still so many fundamental applications of what's been created. Um, and so, I mean, that's, it's a big focus for tortoise, but that to me feels very underappreciated. Yep. I love that. All right. So before we get into what you're up to at tortoise and like the origin story there, I want to hear a bit about your background. So everyone knows even more about you. You've been at awesome places like Uber, LinkedIn, Facebook, and you're also advising a lot of companies right now that I would consider maybe micro mobility space. I mean, it's like, I saw a helicopter company on there. I saw a cargo company, scooter company. What else? A super pedestrian type company. It all kind of seems like you're circling in this uh, very familiar space that you've been in for a while. And so I just want to hear a little bit about your background and how you even got into the space that you've been playing in the past many years. Yeah. So, so I'll give you the very abbreviated kind of life journey. Was born in Kiev, Ukraine. Was fortunate to immigrate to the US when I was three and a half years old. Landed in, uh, in the Seattle area, grew up there, went to school out east, studied very practical subjects like anthropology and political science. Was fortunate, though, that uh, Facebook happened to be recruiting on campus. This is back in 2008 when Facebook only had 80 million users. I was uh, applying for a job that they called User Insights. Uh, and I was like, oh, great, like finally an application for, for all this anthropology expertise. You know, I study cultures, I'll study, you know, deploy that against you know, the, this new Facebook platform. And then what it turned out was user insights was actually customer support. Oh, oh. <laughs> different than what you thought, though. <laughs> yeah, different what you thought. But to give you a sense of kind of where tech was in 2008, Facebook was hiring Ivy League grads to uh, sit in front of a computer all day long. And when people had to reset their Facebook password, it would literally be me on the other end of that, pressing a button, resetting the password. I thought I remembered you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so, so that was a, a humbling beginning to being uh, non-technical in the tech world. And you know, Facebook at the time only really valued you know technical and design talent. And so, I, I think the reason I, I mention it is like it put a very healthy chip on my shoulder of like I'm at this company that like is clearly changing the world, but like. I don't matter at this company, right? And like, you know, it's it's cool what's happening here, but like it motivated me, I think, you know, rest of my career to kind of want to be 
whatever I'm doing, like be in control of it and not just be along on somebody else's ride. And I had a great you know, rest of my ride at Facebook. So ended up uh, leading social gaming advertising when Zynga was 10% of all Facebook's revenue. And so that was a big thing. That was a, a nice lucky break. Opened Facebook's India office and lived out there for nine months. My wife now was one of the other people on the landing team. So that was just a big personal win. And so very, very cool life experience. And then uh, kind of after four years at Facebook, went to a mobile news startup called Pulse uh, that was acquired by LinkedIn, was a product manager at LinkedIn. And then uh, a lot of the smartest folks from, from Facebook were all joining this company, Uber. And I was like, okay, this is going to be my chance to kind of you know, get in relatively early again and you know, hopefully have more of an impact being a bit more senior. And so joined as a director of business development, worked on a bunch of things like leading driver BD for Uber. But what really captured my, my attention and energy is everything happening with light electric vehicles. And I saw, you know, for Uber, the, the true potential was not just being a ride-hailing service, but being a one-stop shop alternative to owning a car. And to, to do that, you need to combine a lot of different modes. So you need ride-hail, you need micromobility, you need car share, car rental, and you need public transit. And I called it the four legs of the stool. My mission at Uber was to get Uber into all those four different domains because I think, you know, still to me, the holy grail of, of kind of transportation technology is let's, let's stop this world where we all have our own cars and they sit empty 95% of the time. Like that's just not, that's not going to scale. And so I led Uber's entry into micromobility, the, the jump bikes uh, partnership and acquisition. The first deals were public transit and car rental were integrated into the Uber app. And so, you know, that was, uh, you know, through that experience, uh, got to know a lot of the best mobility startups and entrepreneurs. And that naturally uh, segued to, to after four great years at Uber, becoming uh, for a year a, a full-time advisor to eight different mobility and future work companies. And so I, I said, you know, my, my pejorative way of describing it is I was a congressman turned lobbyist, yeah, was on the inside. And then all these mobility startups, you know, they want to figure out, well, how do we work with Uber? How do we kind of, you know, get that access to that distribution and, and what's happening there. And so, uh, you know, I was uh, selling my services uh, there. And as is often the case, when you start working with a lot of startups and entrepreneurs, you get inspired uh, to do your own thing. And so, you know, I'm sure we'll get into that. But that was kind of uh, the origin of Tortoise as well after a year of advising. That's awesome. I mean, it seems like your journey everywhere you've been set you up perfectly for Tortoise. I mean, I think about you worked on the payment stuff. You worked on, you know, creating the supply and demand side of things and thinking about Uber and the ride share. I mean, you've literally thought about everything that brings me to when I look at Tortoise, I'm like, oh, you're the perfect person to like found a company like this. So I'd love to just jump right into that. What is Tortoise and what's the origin stories of how you, you know, created this company? Yeah. So, um, so I was advising all, all these startups. One of the startups I was advising, Skip Scooters, Somebody approached us, who's now my, my co-founder, David Graham, and he, he had just wrapped up a project uh, building a remote-controlled lawnmower, which yeah, was not a business I was particularly interested in. But, but the key insight was that the electronics you need for low-speed automation, especially when, when you're heavily relying on, on remote teleoperation, have gotten really cheap. Uh, so basically, if you strap the components in every modern smartphone on a light electric vehicle, you can now remotely drive it from A to B at a low speed. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a, a profound aha moment and kind of tying back together to what we were saying about 4G LTE. So we've got 
you know, very low cost electronics for the remote repositioning. We have, uh, thanks to what was happening with shared scooters and, and e-bikes, very low cost, small electric batteries. You know, so those are also kind of approaching a hundred dollar price point. And then we have, you know, 4G LTE everywhere. And so that, that felt like a very powerful combo. And so when we founded Tortoise, we, we had three uh, founding pillars, which were low speed comes before high speed. So something that's going five miles an hour, a lot less dangerous than something going 50 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one's really important. So we named the company Tortoise. You know, the, the, other, the other meaning of the name Tortoise for us is you know, tortoises live a really long time. Uh, so we aspire to build a hundred year company, which is you know, average life of a tortoise. As the, the old tale says, the tortoise wins. We're in it to win it. Um, and so low speed before high speed. The second pillar was light mass before heavy mass, something that weighs 250 pounds, a lot less dangerous than something that weighs two and a half tons. Uh, and then the third was remote controlled comes before autonomous. And this is particularly when, when you think about automation in, in public spaces, public spheres, you have to deal with these funky little creatures called humans. We fundamentally believe that software that can perfectly anticipate what an unpredictable human is going to do next is still a long ways away. And so the only way to fight fire is with fire. If you have unpredictable humans, you need predictable humans on the other end of that transaction. And so through teleoperations, through the ability to looking at a camera that's connected to over 4G network, and then having somebody else uh, seeing the output of that camera on a laptop uh, with a Xbox controller, that's where you start. And over time, you have more and more autonomous operation, but start with something that's reliable uh, and always works. And so we ended up founding the company late 2019. And the first vertical we were going to go into was actually rebalancing shared scooters. Number one complaint people have about shared scooters is, well, they're cluttering the sidewalk. So imagine if second you end your ride, that scooter gets remotely driven to a good parking spot, or even better yet, you know, somebody can request a scooter and it gets driven right to where they are, right? So kind of have that Uber on-demand experience for the, these light electric vehicle form factors. Unfortunately for us uh, in the short term, but I think fortunately in the, in the long term, we were founding our company right before a global pandemic hit. You know, one of the immediate implications was shared micromobility basically shut down everywhere in the world. And so we had this you know, fantastic technology that we developed where you know, we'd figured out how to, again, over just a 4G network at a low speed, drive scooters around. And so we were able to quickly uh, apply that to- technology to a different use case and vertical. So as personal transportation went down, what went up, which is same day delivery, right? So there's a, a fundamental demand for, for moving goods uh, to people and instead of people moving themselves to get goods. We were able to, uh, using that core technology we developed, build our own remote controlled grocery delivery robot. And so, so that was uh, the product we started deploying in 2020. And so this was a last mile grocery delivery robot. And we saw a big opportunity in, in sidewalk robots for grocery because all the existing sidewalk robots were really designed for food. So they're too small for your typical online grocery order, $100 AOV. You know, people usually like to get big jugs of water and soda, uh, and you just can't fit that. And you know, I'm sure you've seen the Starship robot, KiwiBot, CocoBot, yeah. great technologies, great products, but they're just a little too small for, for grocery. And so we built a, a form factor that still works on the sidewalk, road, shoulder, bike lane, 
we'll, we'll share some videos uh, that, that you see the form factor uh, shortly. And so we started deploying this with, with grocers and retailers. We were fortunate to work with uh, top brands like Safeway, uh, ShopRite, Meyer, And in the course of last year, we, we did 10,000 deliveries uh, in a last mile model where whenever an e-commerce order would come in uh, and there was a, one of our robots were at a store that was within a three mile radius of that order, the retailer would load up the contents into one of the two containers on our robot. They would ping us the address. And on our end, think of it like a call center where we have remote teleoperators on standby. And then they would, you know, we'd have a routing system on our end and then they would follow that. And the, the robot would go on sidewalk, road, shoulder, bike lane to the customer's home. The customer would get a text message with a URL in it. And when they click that URL, it unlocks their container. Uh, they take their goods out and the robot is remotely driven back to the store. Now, this was working relatively well. And we were, you know, we were keen on scaling it up. But we started noticing this really interesting behavior, which is whenever our robots were parked at the store, uh, usually they're parked out front, people would start walking up to them and start talking to the robot. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and start expecting to be able to interact with it. And we were confused because we we're like, well, you know, the robot's not talking to them. And, you know, it's not really you know, designed for interacting with people. You know, it's designed for delivering things, not, not talking to people. And so, you know, maybe wearing my anthropological hat, I'm like, okay, we should start surveying these interactions because like this keeps happening. And it was, frankly, it was kind of annoying because, you know, sometimes we were trying to get out of the store, you know, go on a delivery and people, again, would just like be like kind of standing around the robot talking to it. I would do that at the Stanford Shopping Center. I don't know if you've ever been to the Stanford <laughs> Shopping Center with those little security robots. I would always stop and be like, yeah. hello, what are you all looking at? Can you see me in there? <laughs> so I was one of those people who were your... Uh, annoying your robots. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so, so it led to a, a brilliant insight. So we started asking people, you know, what, what was going on there? And they all said the same thing. And that's interesting too. And everybody says the same thing was, well, we thought we could buy something from the robot. And that was like the light bulb moment where we're, you know, we're like, you know, last mile delivery is a, is a great big market. Uh, but frankly, the reliability of sidewalk robots to do last mile isn't at the three nines reliability, 99.9% that you would want it to be. And part of how you, you know, to think about it is even when I'm constraining the problem to, I just need to go from a store to any address within a three mile radius. If you count up all the possible routes you might have to go on, that's something like 10 million possible unique routes. And every time you're going somewhere you haven't been before, uh, you end up, encountering edge cases. And so, you know, a lot of our, our life last year was playing whack-a-mole on various edge cases that, that come up. And so, you know, we're making progress, but, you know, we're mostly playing a lot of whack-a-mole, yeah. which is, you know, fun game to play, but not when you're running a startup. And so we kind of combined, you know, these two insights of like, hey, you know, we're doing okay at last mile, but it's not the thing that is ready for prime time yet. And it seems like what people really want from our robots is not to have it deliver stuff to them, but to just buy stuff directly from the robot. And so we ran a small test late last year where we made just one modification to our setup. We embedded in each of the two containers in the container lid, a NFC reader. Uh, so the same type of readers when you're at a coffee shop, like the square ones where you just tap to pay on them. Now you can't see the NFC reader. It's just in the container lid. And then we you can mark where on the lid you should do the tap to pay. And with just that one modification, 
we inadvertently invented the world's first remote controlled mobile vending machine. And at first when we were playing around with this, I was like, okay, I'm convinced like there's no way like we're the first to have uncovered this. And I, I distinctly remember spending like 12 hours like searching till the end of Alibaba being like, I'm sure somebody in China has already built this. Like, you know, th this has to exist. There's no way like we we're the first to uncover it. And I, I probably like every possible configuration of the words mobile vending machine, like I searched it and just couldn't find it. And so we're like, okay, like there's clearly something like fresh and new here. And, and we're in a pretty uh, interesting position to, to be able to take advantage of it. And the other thing that, that we realized is when you have this model where in each container, if you're only selling one SKU, so many units of the same product, and then you have tap to pay embedded in the container lid, we also actually end up inventing the world's most fast in-person checkout experience where you don't need an interface, you don't need a screen, you don't need QR codes, apps, websites. You literally just walk up, tap to pay on the container lid. Once we get a success payment API return, the lid will unlock. You lift up the lid, take out one of the boxes of goods inside, and you go. And the number one question, number one question I get asked, which I'll answer uh, preemptively, is like, well, what happens if somebody takes two boxes? You charge them um, for two. Well, you Obvious. <laughs> well, you, well, yeah, but the, the way we know it is, remember our, our friends in Mexico City, the remote teleoperators, uh, they're able to, you know, we have a big camera on top. They're actually able to see into the containers, right? And okay. all they need to see, because everything inside a container is the same product, they don't need to see what you took out. They just need to see that you only took out one box. Now, the reality is we've done thousands of transactions now. We've only had like two incidents of somebody even attempting to take out two containers, two boxes, uh, largely because the robot has a speaker and it's telling you what to do, right? So as you start transacting, yeah. it's like, take one box um, and you know there's a big camera next to you. Uh, and these are usually in pretty public spaces. So again, in not trying to be autonomous, we have a really robust solution that lets us have a very flexible platform, unlike a traditional vending machine. The fun thing about robots is people are fascinated by them. And so, you know, we never, we don't know anybody at the Stephen Colbert show. And uh, this last Thursday, I just woke up to a lot of text messages from friends saying, hey, did you know you're on Colbert last night? And, you know, usually when you get text messages, not that I've gotten text messages like that before, but I was like freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, what happened? Uh, and so, yeah, well, I'll just play the clip. Get ready for the first remote control store on wheels, which will be so convenient for Floridians. Now the Jamba Juice can get high and crash into you. The store. That is the laughter of recognition. The store on wheels is a robot that can sell a varied inventory. Chocolates, AirPods, knee socks. Perfect if you're shopping for three people, but only like two of them. So that was a really fun uh, discovery to make last Thursday morning. And, you know, it uh, goes to show kind of if you're, if you're doing interesting new things, uh, you got all kinds of uh, fun coverage. But the crazy thing about our product is the average transaction time from walking up to the robot and walking away with your goods is 11 seconds. Wow. So, you know, the, the thing I always kind of, you know, my, my standard line when I'm kind of doing a live demo of it is like, I'll ask somebody, what's the fastest you've ever bought something before? They'll usually say like, you know, one minute, five minutes. And I'm like, let's see if we can do 15 seconds. And then it's like, I mean, it usually ends up being five seconds. Um, 
yeah, especially in the in-person context. And, and that's kind of, you know, again, that comes from a constraint, right? So the constraint is we only have two SKUs at a time. Now those containers that you saw, they're swappable. We'll give you as many containers as you want to a retailer. And they throughout the day can put on different containers with different products in them. But at any given point, you have two SKUs. And I mean, if you think about uh, big breakthroughs in, in commerce and retail, so you know, Costco, I think, was the initial pioneer in proving out that if you if you offer other benefits like you know efficiency and cost saving, customers are fine with having limited SKUs. For us, the most interesting takeaway about the quick commerce craze, so like 15-minute delivery, 30-minute delivery, is that's been another kind of extension on that concept that in exchange for instant access for, for convenience, people are fine with a more limited set of SKUs. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, we are the most extreme version of that, right? Just two SKUs, but you're never going to have a more immediate uh, commerce experience, right? Oh kind of my, my standard pitch is like, if you think 15 minute commerce is cool, wait till we try 15 second commerce. Yep. Uh, and, and so that immediacy is just really powerful. Um, and the, the other really interesting behaviors we're seeing is once people buy one item from one of the containers, you know, we're seeing 30% are then buying the item from the second container. Cause like, once you see it works and it's not like, you know, you didn't just get defrauded for 10 bucks. You're like, oh my gosh, that was cool. Yeah, and then something like 20% of people end up actually buying two of the same product. They'll like do the tap to pay again. And actually that's where the, the robot speaker is a natural upsell driver because as part of our theft deterrence, we're like, hey, you just paid for one item. If you want to buy another one, just tap to pay again. And you know, it's funny when people, when you tell somebody, hey, you should buy this again, they'll just kind of you know go with the flow and keep buying. It's just really fun to see people experience a new way of buying things and just seeing the delight and kind of, you know, I've spent a lot of time kind of just somewhat stealthily watching people interact with the robot. And, you know, a lot of times people walk by and be like, what the? So we definitely get those reactions, but then like the smile and the kids, uh, kids love it. Kids are actually our, our best salespeople because oh, I bet. Yeah. They, they'll watch the robot. They'll bring their parents over and like, you know, a lot of pressure on that parent to, to kind of not buy then. So yeah, we're, we're very pro kids. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. Okay, so I'm thinking about your company and like, I mean, you always hear that sometimes being first to market isn't always the best thing because then everyone can say, hey, here's what Dimitri did. I can do all the same things as him and basically get where he's at pretty instantly um, and then trying to innovate quicker on things maybe that you haven't tackled yet. How are you thinking about maybe creating this network effect in a way, whether it's from your customers or maybe it's from like the retailers you're working with in a way that puts a moat around your company so someone can't just come right in and be like, I'm going to do the same thing. And how do you like protect yourself? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll answer that, but I'll say what, what I should have said uh, when, you, when you asked me the question of like, what's kind of the thing that people think is true, but it's just good marketing mm -hmm. is like when investors ask like, well, what, what's going to happen when, when Google or Facebook or Amazon kind of copy you? Yeah. And I can't think of really any startups that's died by that, by that method. 
You should be a lot more worried about, have you actually made something that people want and is it working well? The practical reality in terms of the moat is we've been developing the technology for, for two and a half years. And the recent addition to it that, that kind of unlocked the commerce model where we're directly selling, none of that would work if we didn't have all the other pieces in place, right? So if you didn't have the low-cost robotic platform that we've already developed and have scaled up manufacturing on, uh, it wouldn't work if you didn't have the teleoperations and all the cameras and you know, that working in all kinds of different low-latency environments. This wouldn't have worked if we hadn't already developed a very robust uh, Bluetooth locking mechanism for each container. Yeah. While the recent addition, you know, it was just an NFC reader, it was only that easy because we had all the other hard parts built. So I think, you know, there, there's probably a good, let's say, 18-month timeline for somebody to even get close at replicating the technology. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, you know, w- one big piece of it. The long-term moat is, you know, as it should be for a lot of technology companies, is ultimately around data. So kind of what we see that we're creating that's kind of the new holy grail is historically retail, you can only optimize it on two variables, products and time. So, you know, what product, when I say product, that's inclusive of like the bundle, the price, the branding, like all of that. And then, you know, when are you selling it, right? So is this a seasonal product? Do I sell it in the morning, evening? Like, you know, so, so those are kind of your, your two variables. With the mobile smart store, which is our kind of brand name for, for this new, new offering, you now have a third layer of optimization, which is location. So what's the right product to sell at the right time at the right place? That's a pretty profound kind of new capability. And what we're able to do is aggregate all of the different data we're seeing across all of our different customers and actually be really get really good at predicting, you know, and suggesting to our retailers, like, what is it they should be selling? And so I think that's the part that the network effect, like, really kicks in on. Mm-hmm. And there's also, like, classic economies of scale on hardware production, um, the utilization of our teleoperators. So if you think about a teleoperator like you would, say, a rideshare driver, uh, the single most important metric in rideshare is in a given hour, a driver is online, how many, what percentage of that time are they actively on a trip mm-hmm. uh, generating revenue? And similarly for our teleoperators, you know, of the hour that we booked of their time, their contractors, how many stores do we have for them to be overseeing? Right now, one teleoperator can oversee 15 stores oh. simultaneously. I did not anticipate that. I was thinking it was like a one-to-one thing. So it's one-to-one when we're driving, uh, but okay. when we're just in store mode, you know, we're, it's, it's 15 to one. And so we're kind of toggling in between those. Yeah, because when we're in store mode, you know, all we're really looking for is, again, the, the theft mitigation and then playing audio messages that are cued to what's happening if it's not the kind of basic transaction flows of like successful payment, you know, that's automated. But say somebody is just like really confused you know, there's a series of audio messages we can play. And by the way, one of the really fun things is those can all be customized on a per retailer basis. So for the Sacramento Kings, I think, you know, as they scale up, it'll be something like probably player voices uh, will be talking from the robot, uh, which will be a lot of fun. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're a brand or retailer, you're already working with celebrities, influencers, like, you know, it's trivially easy to uh, have it be their voice. Um, We were just at the Axios What's Next Summit and Axios had one of their main podcast hosts, uh, you know, be the voice of their robot that was mm-hmm. selling insomnia cookies. That's great. So Chef Jose Andreas was uh, at the Axios What's Next Summit, 
And uh, I have to say, a definite career highlight was uh, he, he bought something. It was Insomnia Cookies from uh, our robot, and he loved the experience. And, uh, well, I don't want to get ahead and, and announce things before they're ready, but uh, he's got a lot of really interesting locations uh, that could take advantage of, of what we're doing. And, and uh, yeah, it was uh, wow. a really fun life experience. Um, you know, he, he's doing incredible work on so many fronts. Um, so it was, it was great to have him experience the magic. That's awesome. I mean, so when I'm hearing about all this, I'm getting very excited thinking about the whole model of commerce can essentially change to become this very, you know, localized model, but in the moment, looking at all this data, understanding where people are and what they might be interested in. I mean, it seems like it could have the potential to change how retailers even think about having an in-store presence. Like why have an in-store presence on one street corner when you can be, you know, in I don't know, Zilker Park here driving around at the most popular time selling lunch or breakfast or whatever it might be. Like, where do you think the future is headed when it comes to kind of shifting yeah, how retailers think about selling? Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, there's just so many possibilities. So, I mean, I'll, I'll break down for you how I think about the different segments that we have right now and kind of where where it goes from here. We sit at the intersection of two things, wherever there's foot traffic and wherever there's lines, right? So, you know, if you think about market opportunity for us, like foot traffic and lines, and we're ultimately in the business of incrementality. We're not trying to displace uh, sales that are happening inside of stores. Let's like drive incremental sales. New categories for us, uh, what I'd say is, is stadiums, airports, events. So, you know, I mean, you saw us at, at the Kings uh, Arena. You know, we're going to be in the largest mall in the world by the end of this month. Uh, which is going to be really exciting. Uh, Mall of America. Wow. Uh, we're going to be in, uh, you know, airports are, are coming online very soon. Concerts, you know, so again, wherever you have a lot of people in one place and they otherwise would be waiting in a line, that's like a no brainer opportunity for us. Yep. The other kind of easy category, and this is before we we're even having to do a lot of driving, right? This is pretty limited uh, remote driving. Uh, sidewalk retail. So if you have a retail location and there's a lot of foot traffic passing by that's not there just for you, we're a way to monetize that foot traffic. Um, and there's like a lot of really simple. So our very first customer was Bake Sump, which is the most delicious bakery in, uh, in Oakland. Yeah. Their, their use case was so simple. They would put our mobile smart store in front of their bakery right when they closed down. So they closed down at 1 p.m., and then they loaded up, you know, they still have extra inventory. They loaded up into, into the robot, already comes boxed, uh, delicious pastries. And they're able to extend their selling hours for, for another four or five hours, right? And drive, you know, several hundred dollars more in sales. And so that's, you know, super low effort, immediately impactful, you know, doesn't require, you know, any kind of regulatory engagement with the city. You know, it's, it's, it's a very lightweight way to start having a very big impact, especially in a COVID uh, post-COVID environment, you know, a lot of folks are still the cost benefit of walking inside a store, unless you absolutely need something, it's not there for a lot of people. But if you can drive those impulse buys as you're walking by on the sidewalk, and again, it's not, we're not intruding on the sidewalk in the same, you know, area where you have your tables and chairs, just put a mobile smart store. You know, it's about the width of, of a wheelchair. Um, you know, the, the, the way I explain our, our robot is it's like an electric wheelchair with, you know, two smartphones built into it, you know, and that's kind of the, the kind of core mechanics of it. The reason, by the way, we're, we're such a good fit for SMBs is I haven't gotten to the, the business model yet. We actually give away the hardware, software service at no cost. 
And our business model is we just keep 10% of sales. Got it. Okay. And so if you're, if you're an SMB retailer, you just don't have the budget to invest, you know, $20,000, $10,000, even $5,000 in some speculative new thing. But when my story is like, Hey, you get a robot, it's branded, it's going to generate press just like, you know, on day one, uh, and it's going to drive you in incremental sales. And by the way, you get to choose what goes inside and how you price it. There's not really a lot of reasons to say no. And so that that's part of, you know, why we, you know, when we started, you know, this year going with this model, you know, we decided to phase down all of our last mile deployments and just go 110% at the mobile smart store. Yeah, I love that. Oh, if we had so much more time, I would keep going in all the different directions. I want to talk about last mile, though, because we've had quite a few guests on the show, you know, mention how last mile needs to be solved and uh, maybe ideas around what could happen over the coming years. But I know you have some thoughts about it, like the last mile industry in general. So I kind of want to hear where you think it's headed and maybe, um, I mean, you were in it. So like what was holding up other than all the uh, whack-a-mole problems? Like what else is holding up getting that finished? You know, one of the things that was uh, keeping me up at night, um, in addition to like the, you know, whenever we're going to a new address, like what might happen, right? And, you know, you start operating at a certain scale, you know, the one of the lessons from Uber is when you're doing millions of rides a day, a one in a million thing happens every single day. You know, that, that's a bad thing, right? Like an accident, you know, like there's, there's, I mean, this is the real world. Transportation is not, you know, th things happen. And that was kind of, I was losing sleep over that. I was also losing sleep over imagining a successful scenario where say our robots are everywhere and we'll actually start recreating on the sidewalk and bike lanes some of the same congestion challenges we have on roads. And, and kind of the core, the core problem is, regardless of the vehicle form factor, if you just have one order in a vehicle at a time, it's grossly inefficient, right? Whether it be a car, a robot. So the only way that last mile works is if you have batching, right? So if you're able to, on one route, do multiple deliveries. And the, the tension that exists in the space right now and why I think, you know, the really uncomfortable reality that I think more press should cover is how do you get to batching when consumers want faster and faster delivery times, right? So in a world where it was next day delivery, you know, batching is easy, even when it's, you know, same day delivery, but like you place your order in the morning and then it comes in the afternoon, you, you can do batching. But once you start operating two-hour delivery windows, one-hour delivery windows, then, I mean, anything 30 minutes or less, there's no opportunity for batching, right? And, and consumers have been trained to expect the 15-minute delivery, 30-minute delivery, uh, especially in, in dense urban areas. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the when Amazon introduced two-day shipping, like once you go two days, you don't go back, right? And, and so like a week all of a sudden felt like a lifetime. And so I think that's kind of, you know, consumer expectations around convenience only go towards more convenience. They never go backwards. Unless price catches up. Yeah. I feel like some people have kind of like gone the opposite way now where they've kind of reviewed like, what did it look like getting the door dashes and the deliveries like, you know, every single day? Oh, there's quite a bit more fees in there. Maybe I'll actually just go and get it myself now. Like it does seem like pieces of it are kind of reversing because the pay caught up to it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, you know, I think those businesses um, that are in last mile, you know, I know there's smart people thinking about this there. And I think the answer is really making those economics more explicit of like, hey, 
you know, do you really need to order your Chinese food you know, tonight knowing that, you know, like, can you order it the day before? Like you always order from the same restaurant. Like, do you really need the spice of life variety of like, you know, ordering it right at that moment? Because people end up being pretty consistent in their behaviors. And so the thing that also got me really excited about what we're doing with, with the mobile smart store is I see a path where, and this isn't where we're focused on the next year or probably even two years, where we potentially could disrupt the need for last mile by anticipating what people want before they need to order it. The way I like to explain it is right now, all of last mile, it has the same flow where first you have to have a demand for something. Then you go on a website or app and you order it and then it comes to you. So you kind of start with the demand and then the fulfillment happens. What I think is a really radical idea is what if you flip it around? What if you start with the fulfillment and use that to generate the demand? And so I call this push commerce or anticipatory commerce. And so I'll give you a specific example. Imagine getting a push notification on your phone that says, hey, there's a mobile smart store four blocks away from your house. It's got these four things in it that we think you might like. Let us know if you want us to stop by in front of your house. Mm -hmm. That all of a sudden is going to be a five-minute delivery uh, if you say yes. And it is going to be purely incremental for whoever that retailer is because that's, 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 a, that's something that wouldn't have happened. You know, another way of expressing it is it's forward-deployed inventory, right? Don't wait until you know, somebody has to put in the order like have it already there. And this kind of ties back to that data holy grail of if you know what products people like at what times, and you know, it tends to be that people that live in the same neighborhoods tend to like the same things, you know, mm -hmm. socioeconomic factors. So there's some natural efficiencies there. And you know, to me, that's a way to recreate the magic of super fast delivery with hyper-efficient batching, yeah. right? And, and I think that's kind of one way to, to kind of solve the conundrum of like consumers wanting things faster and faster and expecting that. And, you know, the, just the economic and environmental inefficiency of like having a single order be in a single robot or vehicle or, or whatever that transportation form factor is. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Have you ever heard of Aud Hopkins? He wrote the book like My Life in Advertising. No, but now I want to check it out. It's a good one. Yeah. Well, it just what you were talking about kind of brought up kind of like old school tactics where he essentially invented or talked about why he invented coupons like clip coupons. And it was to drive demand to have enough inventory to even open up like a mom and pop shop. And I was like, why? Mm. Like how he even thought about creating coupons was kind of in this same vein as like push commerce of making sure that you've got the interest there and you already have the inventory and um, keeping it more localized. So you know exactly what the pe people in this neighborhood want from the certain store. And it's a good book, but it also made me think exactly what you're talking about. I'm like, oh, new school tactics from uh, way back in the day that are being brought back to life though. Yeah, there, there's no such thing as new ideas, just mashups of old good ideas. I'm a firm believer in that. Yep, yep. All right, so the last thing I want to ask you is what are you most excited about over the next year um, outside of, you know, tortoise or your work, like what are you watching right now that, or it can be personal too, that you're just really, really amped up about? Yeah. So, I mean, the most in interesting anthropological uh, surveying I'm doing is I have three daughters, seven years old, four years old and 20 months old. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, I mean, those are really exciting years. Right. And so just kind of seeing, you know, especially as kind of the 20 month old is becoming 
crossing that threshold of becoming a real person uh it's just yeah i think that that's that's the most uh, thing i'm always most excited about i mean i i think the kind of you know kind of on the non-personal level while covid has been devastating and you know a lot of obviously negativity i'm excited about the opportunity just for a reset of reimagining all kinds of different ways the world works right and and so i think you know, we're kind of past the point of, you know, the pandemic really being a, a health thing. And now it's like, okay, the world's changed. Like, what do we do about it? Uh, what, you know, what, what are the good things that happen? What are the things that we kind of need to move away from? And I think just as, as some, as a creative person, I just, I think whenever we can move away from incumbency, that's exciting to me. And, and when transformation is happening, like, you know, we can make investments now, we can, you know, put in place new systems that could really have really profound positive impacts in the next 20, 30 years. Also negative impacts, so we need to be thoughtful about it. But uh, you know, the 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 old Chinese expression, you know, the curse of living in interesting times. Um, you know, let's let's turn the curse into an opportunity, right? We're we're kind of living in an unprecedented moment and uh let's kind of try to make the most of it. Oh. Yep, I agree. Dimitri, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This is awesome. I feel like we're gonna have to have you back for around two in the future when you all have been live in the world even longer to kind of hear what's changed, what's the same. So um, in the meantime, where can people find out more about you and Portis? Yeah, so uh, add me on LinkedIn, uh, on on Twitter, uh, I'm at Dimitri140. Uh, and then uh, Tortoise is tortoise.dev is our website. And then follow us at, at TortoiseHQ on Twitter as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, it was so much fun. listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.